0: God is strong, and he wants you strong. So take everything the master has set out for you, well-made weapons of the best materials, and put them to use so you will be able to stand up to everything the devil throws your way. Yes, stand, truth banded around your waist, righteousness as the protective armor that covers your heart, and standing with feet protected and alert, always ready to share the blessings of peace. At all times, carry faith as a shield, for it is able to extinguish the blazing arrows coming at you from the evil one, and embrace the power of salvation's full deliverance, like a helmet to protect your thoughts from lies. Finally, take the mighty, razor-sharp spirit sword of the Word of God. So, put on God's armor now, fight to the end, hold your ground, and rise victorious.
1: I want to tell you about an Australian, perhaps the most famous Australian in all of history. His name is Steve Irwin. You may have heard of him, also known as a crocodile hunter. He is truly an iconic Aussie. Steve Irwin passed away 14 years ago, and yet he is still remembered worldwide. He's loved because of his love for animals, his love for the environment. And yet tragically, that's how Steve died. See, he was on Bat Reef doing a documentary off of the shores of Australia. And during a bit of a weather issue, they took a break from the documentary, and he decided to go and film a short-tailed stingray, which happens to be the largest stingray in the world. It may have a short tail, but it's got about a six-foot wingspan. It's an amazing creature, normally very docile, no issues. Well, Steve was swimming along with this huge creature, when something happened to trigger a defense response, it flipped its tail around on Steve and stabbed his heart with that venomous eight-inch barb. And Steve died as a result of it. Now, normally, if you get stunned by a stingray, it's because you step on it somewhere in the sand and you take a puncture wound to the calf or to the foot or to the ankle, And the venom is not really powerful enough to kill a human being. It hurts a lot. And I cannot imagine going through even that amount of pain. But you see, the the leg and the ankle and the foot, though it can be painful and somewhat vulnerable, won't end your life. But the heart, the human heart, a puncture like that, the venom, well, the human heart can't take it. It is just too vulnerable. So why am I telling you about Steve Irwin and what happened to him? It's because we are in this series called Overcoming Evil, the victory, the truth, the hope that Christ has given to us. As we think about the victory that God has given to us, as we think about overcoming evil, we remember that the enemy is always firing at us venomous darts of temptation, venomous darts of accusation. He's always trying to attack the most vulnerable parts of our life to destroy us. And so Paul says it's important for us to make sure that we have on the armor of God, the God-given armor, to protect us from those darts, from those barbs filled with venomous evil that can bring our lives down. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 14 and says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. That's what we looked at last weekend. And now he says, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now remember the context. Paul is under arrest in Rome. Eventually he'll face Nero on trial. While he's under arrest, he's writing to various churches, like the church at Ephesus, And while he's writing to them, he's trying to tell them how to protect themselves from the evil that they're facing in the evil day they're living in, just like we're living in an evil day. He's probably chained or linked up to a Roman guard. And the Holy Spirit inspires him to look at the guard's armor and use that as a metaphor to describe how Christians should armor up against the evil one. He has already talked about the belt of truth, and we looked at that just last weekend, and what that means, how we need to tuck our whole life into the truth of God. And then he studies another part of the armor. He studies what was known as the Lorica Segmentata, or the heart cover. It was the breast piece that the soldier wore. It was very unique. It was made out of, like, metal leaves that were held together by leather straps. It was built, constructed in such a way that it would be very difficult for a sword to pierce through or a sharp projectile that one might throw or toss at the soldier. It kept him safe. His most vulnerable part, his heart, and his lungs, and his liver were protected by that armor. Paul says, in the same way, we have a different kind of lorica segmentata. It is called the breastplate of righteousness. And Paul says we need to use that to protect the most vulnerable part of our spiritual lives. Now what part is he talking about? Well actually if you study the original language and you know the ancient mind, they never thought about the heart as representing one's emotions, or one's soul, or the depth of one's being. They actually spoke of the bowels being that. The problem is, as modern translators try to figure out how to help us understand that, it doesn't work to talk about our bowels as kind of the seat of our emotions. So they instead choose to use the word heart. I mean, it'd be kind of weird anyway if you said to somebody, I love you with all my bowels, or baby, you move my bowels. That that just would not work, right? But the question is, what does he mean then by bowels, or we'll say in modern terms, heart? What part of our life is that describing? The part of our life it describes is that deepest place in us, that deepest place of belief and feelings about our worth and our value. And oftentimes we think of it as our gut or our heart. It feels like it's deep in here, that place where where we have our belief, in our feelings about who we really are, our value, our worth. If you want to write this principle down, I encourage you to do so. You see, the most vulnerable part of our lives, of your life and my life, is our beliefs and the feelings about our worth. Isn't that true? I mean, you can throw a punch at my body and I can recover from that. But if you strike my soul... If you strike that deepest part of me where I think about who am I, what is my worth, what is my value, what is my meaning, you could do irreparable damage there. I mean, for some people, it even leads them to take their own life. We're so vulnerable. You know that saying, sticks and stoves may break my bones, but names will never hurt me? That is so not true. I remember as a kid, and I've shared some stories with you, if you've been around for a while about my childhood it was anything but fun and good i was uh, abused overseas by a national and then when we came home to live in the states a relative abused me into my junior high years not only that but i was a third culture kid i could just not not really fit into the tough little town in the midwest where we settled i got made fun of a lot i had buck teeth and make fun of my teeth I had high-water pants because we couldn't afford, you know, clothes was all hand-me-down stuff, so I got made fun of for that. I was a kid that was uh, overweight and freckle-faced and, and uncoordinated, and so I heard lots of jokes. I heard, I, I heard lots of insults, and, and I wanted to belong. I wanted somebody to accept me. I wanted somebody to like me. And so those years were real loner years for me. And I remember as I heard those things just wondering, does anybody like me? I began to question whether I liked myself. I even wondered, because the kind of church that we went to, which was really, you know, a hard-nosed kind of preaching about all the things that you do wrong and you're in danger of the flames of hell, I began to wonder if God even liked me. And it took me a long time to get over a lot of those things and really believe that God did love me. God did like me. Maybe you can relate to that in your own life. I mean, all of us, to some degree, experience what it's like to have our worth or our value questioned or insulted or diminished or taken away. Those of you who are parents raising kids, my goodness, what they face today is incredible. I mean, the pressure on them. Your kids know what it's like not to make, you know, the lead part in that drama they tried out for at school or not to make first chair, or not to make the, the, you know, the first team in their sport that they're so interested in. And that hurts. That hurts when your name's not read off, when you don't get that part. It also hurts when that group of friends you want to be a part of rejects you. Or you think you're part of them, and then all of a sudden you're not invited to something really special. They know what that pain is like. As adults, we know what it's like. We know what it's like to be made fun of, to be laughed at at work, to be passed over and the promotion's given to somebody else, to be told we're overqualified and what they really mean is you're too old. We know what it's like, some of us, to be put down because of the heaviness of our accent or the color of our skin or our economic background or the car that we drive in the neighborhood that we live in. All of us experience Our worth, our value, in some way, being questioned, being insulted. And all of us have participated in insulting others and bringing down their value and the meaning in their life. Even in our marriages, our families, our friendships, sometimes we say things that are so painful, they're like barbs into the heart. And what we don't realize when we say those things and do those things is it creates an accumulation of scars that affect our lives. You know, there's a, a term that's used today. It's called being Plutoed. I wanted to show you this cartoon. You remember poor little Pluto over here? He thought he was a planet. And then a bunch of people decided he wasn't a planet anymore. And so all the planets are kind of looking at him like, like, you don't belong. And so the term that's sometimes used today is Oh, have you been Plutoed? (laughs) Have you been kind of separated? Have, Have you been told or made to feel like you don't belong anymore? Where does that come from? Why do we do that to each other? And why is it we struggle so much with a sense of worth and a sense of value? Well, to answer that question, all we have to do is go back to the early books of the Bible, and particularly the book of Genesis, You know, in the first two chapters of Genesis, we read that God created everything. And everything was so good. Everything was good. And then we get to Genesis chapter 3 and something changed. Let me actually sketch it out for you. So if you want to draw along, feel free to do that. Let's begin by thinking about God. And uh, I think about God in all of his glory. And God creates human beings. So think about this as Adam the first that he created. And as Adam looks at God, he learns about himself. In other words, as he knows God, he comes to know himself. And he knows himself as loved, as approved, as perfect, as having inestimable worth and value, because he's God's prized creation on earth. And not only does Adam know that, but out of Adam, remember, God created Eve and Eve knows God this way, and Eve knows Adam this way, and Adam knows Eve this way. What an idyllic and perfect setting. But then one day, who shows up? The serpent shows up. The evil one shows up, and the evil one suggests to Eve and Adam that they don't need to look to God for their sense of worth and value. They ought to just simply look to themselves they can be like God themselves. Why look to God? They can decide what is good and what is evil and be complete. And so what Adam and Eve do? Well, we know the story. They disobey God. They tried to become like God. And what happens is when they take a look at themselves, what they discover is not approved, is not worth, is not value. What they discover is shame. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book called Ethics says that shame is our recognition, our intuitive awareness that we've been separated from God, that we're on our own, that we're now incomplete, that there's something missing, that 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 value and that worth is gone and we can't get it back. So what do we do as human beings? Well, we go in search of a sense of significance. And the way we do that is we go and we try to find people who will tell us we have worth and tell us we have value. Now, here's the insanity of it, okay? We're all doing it. We're all looking at each other for some sense of worth and some sense of value. The problem is, because of our sinful nature, because of our pride now, we have a tendency to base our worth and our value on how we are different from others, how we are better than others. So the very people we look for value and worth from sometimes turn right around and judge us and insult us to make themselves feel better while making them feel while making us feel worse. In fact, I've come to believe that one of the evidences that God did create us is this fact that we are in search of value. We are in search of worth. We're in search of approval. We're in search of acceptance. The problem is we're searching and looking in all of the wrong places. And all we have to do is look at our lives and look at the lives of others. And just see what misery it leads to when we are not in right relationship with our Creator, the only one who can give us a sense of worth and value and acceptance. The problem is this. Because of our sin, there is nothing that we can do that in in any way will get us back in a good place with God. These are sinful the Apostle Paul put it this way. He wrote Romans 3.10, As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one of us is righteous. And we demonstrate that unrighteousness all the time in our behaviors and our actions, especially toward each other. I was reading about Jean-Paul Sartre, who was anything but a Christian. He was was an atheist, an existentialist. And he wrote a play. It was a one-act play, and it was called No Exit. And in this play, he talks about three people who have been condemned or sentenced to hell. And hell is in a room without windows. They're gonna spend, these three people are going to spend the rest of eternity in this room without windows. And one of the characters says, in the French literally, hell, it is the other, or hell is the other in English. Sartre says a lot of people have misunderstood why I had that character say, hell, it is the other. A lot of people hear that, what they think I'm saying is, you know, bad relationships with people, it's hell. It's hell when, you know, when you're in a tough relationship with a friend or a spouse or a boss or somebody else. He says, that's not what I meant by it. He said, what I meant by it is simply this. Hell, it is the other. Hell is when people judge us and we take their judgments and criticisms of ourselves as being truth. That is, we begin to see ourselves the way others see us. There is is no other way for you and me to know ourselves outside of what other people think of us. You view yourself today based on what your parents thought about you, your peers thought about you, your friends thought about you, and that continues to this very moment. And until we get out of that and see how God views us, oh my goodness, the pain that causes to our souls. Hell is when you have to live and think of yourself the way other people think about you. And oftentimes, we give hell to others by the way we treat them and talk about them and ridicule their souls and their worth and their value. And as we saw in that verse, man, there's just, there's no way out of that. There's none of us that is good enough, honestly, to get out of that world, so to speak, and stand before God and have God say, I approve you, I love you, I accept you. Let's look at that verse again in in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Paul said, in that verse, he said, there is none who is righteous. no not one. Although, listen, there was a time in Paul's life when he thought he was pretty righteous, when he would have disagreed with what he wrote later on. Let me show you what I mean. If you go to Philippians chapter 3, Paul gives a little story about what it used to be like. He says, you know, I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for the righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Man, that's a boastful, prideful comment, huh? What kind of character was Paul sometime. He said, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless. Actually, the the, the original language means I consider them to be dung. I consider these things to be worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith, faith in Christ. Now, this is what Paul is saying is, you know, I thought I was a pretty good guy. I thought I was pre righteous until I compared myself to God's Son, to Jesus Christ. And then I became aware of just how unrighteous and unholy I am. And what Paul experienced when Jesus ambushed him on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter nine was what has been called the great exchange that we can all experience. But rather than me trying to describe it in words, let me kind of act it out and show it to you. But in order to do that, I've got to have you pause for, for a few seconds because I actually have to change uh, outfits. I've got to put a costume on. So while I'm doing that, just check out the armor here and kind of think about some of the things that we've mentioned already. And I'll try to be really quick right now. And what I'm going to do basically is I'm going to give you a, a kind of a, a, a visual of what Paul is saying. And a visual of what, well, to be honest with you, what we sometimes end up saying to God and trying to impress God with and and also trying to impress others as well. So I appreciate your patience. If you just tuned in, you're wondering where am I right now? I am back here getting ready to wow and amaze you with my uh, very special costume, okay? So you ready? Here we go. Thanks for your patience. What do you think of this, huh? this not clean? Is this not pure looking? Now imagine that this represents me trying to impress God with my goodness and my righteousness. You know something? I don't smoke. I don't chew. I don't go with girls that do. I read the King James Version only because that's what Paul wrote. And that's what Jesus said and spoke. I go to Sunday school. I go to worship service. I tithe, and I don't just tithe. I give more than a tithe. I don't cheat. I don't lie. I don't gossip. I don't lust. If I see a pre- girl coming, I'll bang my head against the wall in an effort not to look at her. And I fast. Oh, some days I'm so hungry, but I fast. I'm a pretty good guy, don't you think? Would you like to hear some more? Do you have all day? Whoa. Sounds very arrogant, doesn't it? That's what Paul said. He's saying, man, I look so good. And a lot of times the way we try to seek approval and worth and value is by talking about our goodness, is by trying to really be good. I mean, doing lots of good things. We try to live a squeaky clean life as though we're bundling together a bunch of goodness to kind of present to God and say, see God, see how good I am? And if you compare me to Dale or to Bob or to Sue or to Sally or to that group or that group, well, I mean, I'm pretty clean compared to them. But here's the deal. God doesn't look on the outside. God instead looks on the inside and when he takes a look on the inside, it's like Isaiah said. Our righteousness is like filthy rags. God sees the pride. He sees the competition. He sees the jealousy. He sees the put-downs. He sees the criticisms. He sees what we say to others and how we treat them. That's what he saw in the Pharisees. And God says, you may look good on the outside, but you're rotten on the inside. Your righteousness is like filthy rags. That's why Paul says there's no one righteous, none whatsoever. What we need is is an exchange. We need need something else to wear. So I've asked Jeff to join me, and he's gonna represent Jesus. Now look at that beautiful robe. It's even got kind of a, a kingliness to it as well. And Christ comes in all of his righteousness, totally approved, totally loved, totally accepted by his Father, the Son of God. You know what he says? He says, repent and give up that righteousness you're trying to earn. And then he says, let me take it from you. And he takes my filthy rags and he puts it on. The Son of God puts on my dirt. And I take his pure righteous robe so to speak and i clothe myself with his purity and christ takes my unrighteousness and he takes it to the cross and there he dies my death and invites me to live his life and as i put faith in christ as paul says something beautiful happens god now looks at me dressed in his son's righteousness And he says, approved. He says, accepted. He says, perfect. And it's all an act of grace. Isn't that amazing? And if you've received Christ into your life, do you know what's happened? Look what Paul says in Romans chapter five. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith in Jesus, we have peace with God now. The war is over. The battle is done. We have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. It is so beautiful. It is so true. It is so powerful. Let me ask you a question. Do you know that truth? Do you know that power in your life? Dressed in his Righteousness alone, the song says. Faultless to stand before the throne. If you put your faith in Christ, that's you. But like a lot of us, that's true about us, but we're not living that truth out. We're not activating that truth in our life. We're still running around trying to get approval, trying to get human beings, sinful human beings who tend to be critical by nature, even the best of them, to tell us we have worth and value. And some of those people that we love dearly can tell us how much they love us, how great a worth and value we have one day and the next day, be so critical and so negative. Listen, jot this down and don't forget it only by faith in Christ and the righteousness that he has closed us with can we experience the perfect approval and acceptance that our soul longs for. But the question becomes this, how do we activate? How do we activate the breastplate of righteousness how? How do I take this this righteousness that Christ has placed on me and, and how do I use it to overcome that temptation to seek approval in the wrong places? Well, Tim Keller has some principles that I've kind of reworded a bit, but they make a lot of sense to me and they may help you think about how to begin to do that in your own life. Let's look at a couple of them. First of all, when you're feeling bitter, replace that feeling by putting on the breastplate of Christ's righteousness. So what do you mean by that? Well, let's, let's think it through. Where does bitterness come from? We become bitter toward others when we feel like they're taking from us, taking advantage of us, or insulting us, or hurting us in some way. Let me give you an example. Let's imagine a parent who is raising a child, and they've done everything they can to raise a child in a good way, in a right way, but that child rebels and ends up doing things that are embarrassing to the parent, acting in ways that that are hard for that poor parent. And over time, the parent begins to feel bitterness toward that child. Bitterness because, because that child makes them feel like a failure. That child's actions and attitudes and behavior make them begin to feel like they somehow have failed the child, failed God, and they wonder what other people must be thinking about them. Let me ask you a question. In that scenario, what is it that makes that parent righteous before God? Is it how well they parented or how their child turned out? No. What makes them acceptable and approved and loved and perfect in God's sight is the righteousness of Christ. And that alone it has nothing to do with how good a parent they are or aren't. So, whenever you feel bitterness coming on, for whatever reason, remind yourself what makes me righteous is not how somebody's behaving or treating me. What makes me righteous is what Christ has done for me. Let's look at another example. When you're struggling with guilt, oh my goodness, how many of you struggle with guilt? False guilt and real guilt, right? When you're struggling with guilt, put on the breastplate of Christ's righteousness. I love this passage in 1 John 3, verse 20. It says, For whenever our heart condemns us, I deal with that a lot. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. God's greater than our guilt, and he knows everything. What makes me acceptable to God? Being guiltless? What makes me acceptable to God? Proving to others I'm not guilty. What makes me acceptable to God, approved and loved by God, is seen as perfect by God. Has nothing to do with my guilt. It has everything to do with the righteousness of Christ. You say, but what do you, what do you do if you've done something wrong and you feel guilty? Well, then if you've done something wrong, and you're guilty for it. It does not affect how God views you. It may affect your relationship with God in terms of fellowship. If my kids do something wrong, they don't stop being my kids. I still love them as my kids. Now, I'm an imperfect parent, right? So it's it's not always easy for me to handle loving them. Sometimes I get angry with them. But you know something? They're still my kids. I still love them. And when they take care of that issue and they confess it and they say they're sorry, hey, we're good. But God you know, our Abba in heaven is different. No matter what you do, no matter how you mess up, he never stops seeing you as perfect. He never stops seeing you as accepted as approved. Because he's seeing you dressed in Christ. That's the only way we can be accepted by him. You say, well, that's awesome. Does that mean that I can just go and sin then? No, Paul anticipated that. So Romans chapter 6, he says, he says, you know, shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? He says, no, of course not. If I really understand what Christ has done for me, I don't want to sin. And when I do, I'm quick to confess it. Because I'm in awe of what he's done for me. Third principle. When you're working too hard, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Why do some of us work so hard, right? Because we're performance-oriented. And we think if we work hard enough, we'll be accepted. The boss will accept us. People will admire us. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll have some sense of worth and esteem. You can, work, you can work yourself into the dirt, and that's not going to make you more acceptable to God. So chill out. Relax. It is the righteousness of Christ that gives you worth and value. Let's look at another one. When you're feeling shy or self-conscious, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Why do we feel shy and self-conscious? Why do we do that? Because we're worried about what other people think about us. We feel naked. We're, We're kind of ashamed. Somebody may see my faults. I might get put down. I might be embarrassed on the spot. Listen, Who cares what anybody thinks about you? Honestly, who cares? we got to get past that. All that matters is what God thinks about me. And he thinks I'm special. He thinks I'm perfect. I've been approved because of the breastplate that's been laid over me, that vulnerable place of me the righteousness of Christ. You know, some stories are worth telling over a lot. And there are some stories that I love to tell myself, and I've shared this story with you before, but I've got to share it again. It means a lot to me. I was told by my friend, Brendan Manning, about a Catholic priest in Detroit, Michigan, Ed Farrell. Ed Farrell went to Ireland to visit his uncle, Seamus, who was going to celebrate his 80th birthday. And so on the morning of Uncle Seamus' 80th birthday, they went for a walk along Lake Killarney before the sun had risen. And then they just stood there. They waited in silence. Finally, the sun began to peek over the horizon. And as the sun rose into the sky, Uncle Seamus, 80 years old now, began to dance and to sing and to be filled with joy. And Ed Farrell shouted out and said, Uncle Seamus, why are you so happy? And he responded, he said, because the Father of Jesus is very fond of me. I love that. I'm so happy because the Father of Jesus, the Abba of Jesus, is so very fond of me. Can you believe that today? Can you believe that the Father of Jesus is so very fond of you? I know a lot of you don't believe that. Do you know why? Because you're trying to earn God's stamp of approval. You're trying to do something that will will make you feel like, okay, now God can accept me. Listen, there's nothing you can do. It's all been done for you. Accept his righteousness. So I have a little exercise to help you with that. It's kind of a next step, okay? I want to challenge you this coming week, once a week, once a day, for this next week to go find your white bathroom. Now, if you don't have one, go buy a cheap one, all right? Just go buy a cheap one. And if you don't want to buy a cheap one, then go find a white sheet. Find something white, okay? To represent purity, the righteousness of Christ. And once a day, I want you to take that and I want you to wrap yourself in it. I want you to just sit somewhere, stand somewhere where you're alone. Nobody's there to bother you. And I want you to remind yourself, that you're approved, you're accepted, you are loved because of the righteousness of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the breastplate of righteousness which covers the most vulnerable part of our life, that place where we believe and feel our worth. God, the world tears away, the enemy tears away at our worth and our value. It cheapens us, it hurts us. But Father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ we find our worth and value. And Lord, once again, we want to just come into that clothing, that garment of righteousness and accept the fact that we are accepted, approved, and loved by you. Forgive us, Lord, for trying to earn it. Forgive us for trying to compete for it. Forgive us for trying to prove it. Help us, O God, to enjoy it. And to find the freedom, O God, of not competing, of not being jealous, of not judging. Help us, God, not only to see ourselves that way, but help us to see others the way you see them. How that would change our marriages and our families and our friendships, O God. Help us look past what we see wrong and be able to see what is right. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.